it's pretty dry around here, and we are hopeful for rain and continue to pray for rain, but it's still dry. So could you imagine if God asked one of us to build a 450-foot-long ship? Well, that's what he asked Noah to do, and that's exactly what Noah did. I'll bet his neighbors thought he was crazy. But it's a good thing he did, because God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He flooded the earth, and he wiped out everything. But Noah and the animals were saved through the redemption of God. God fulfilled his promise. We have not. So God continues today his act of redemption. But not through a big boat. But through his son, Jesus Christ. The Scarlet Thread. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be bringing God's Word to us this morning and talking about Noah and what God did there. One thing you'll notice, though, is it says Hope Floats on the screen there, and that's the title of a bad 90s movie. Not only that, it was the title of the sermon, but, um, well, Dave started on the sermon, and, well, let's just say I was able to put my boots on without hurting myself in the snow. Um, so, I'm, so he asked me to bring the message today, and uh, I've called it um, The Flood Was Not a Mulligan. That's kind of the title that I went with and the direction that we're going with this sermon. Um, but we're in the middle, well, we're near the beginning of a series talking about the scarlet thread of redemption all through Scripture. Um, eight great stories that are forever told, something that I'm excited about, and some little-known facts about the Bible that I'm that I think are really cool. One is that, I don't know if you knew this, but the Bible was written over the course of 1,600 years. 1,600 years from the time of Moses to the time that John died. It's a giant chunk of time. 1,600 years, 40-plus authors. There's at least 40 different distinct authors who are from different economic and social backgrounds, some kings, some poets, some ranchers. I mean, there's everything in there. Not only that, it was written on three different continents. It was written on three continents in three different languages. It's in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. But the coolest thing about the whole Bible is though there's all these broad things about it, it has one theme. From beginning to end, and that's the person, of work, person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we look at the scarlet thread of redemption throughout Scripture, it's a series that really makes sense because that's the theme of all of Scripture. The Old Testament is continually looking forward to the coming of a Messiah, looking forward to Christ. The New Testament looks back toward the Messiah that came and forward toward his second coming. That's the whole of Scripture. So as we look at this scarlet thread, this is a theme that's obvious from beginning to end. And... Um, one thing I just want to make mention of, as we're going through this series, we're talking a whole lot about God the Father. We're talking a whole lot about God the Son. And um, God the Holy Spirit isn't getting a whole lot of air time. Um, we're not spending a whole lot of time. And the reason for that um, is simply because as we go through the Old Testament, God the Father and God the Son are more prevalent through Scripture than the Holy Spirit is. Not that he's any less God, but as far as prevalent and obvious in his workings, it's not stated as much. And we don't want to force him in somewhere where he's not. 
um, that would be a disservice. So we're not spending a whole lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit where, um, through this series, but he will come up. There are images through him all through Scripture, um, but that's not the main topic of this series. So I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be going through Noah and the flood. Now, last week, we talked about creation. We talked about Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. It was a great message thing, the scarlet thread of redemption starting at creation. But this week, we're going to talk about a guy that most of us probably remember from a really annoying song and his archy, archy, archy. Um, those of you who grew up in Sunday school probably remember that one. We're talking about a guy named Noah. And quickly, I'm just going to run over the story of the flood, and we're putting it here underneath this undated section. Um, most of the other stuff we're going to talk about has a date, but Noah and the flood does not. Some people have tried to date Noah and this um, global flood somewhere around 20,000 years before Christ. Um, at that point, it's all just guessing. So we're not even going to try to name a date on it. Um, but it was a long time ago. That's what, we're, that's what we're calling it. So, Noah, what was going on is, if you're not, if you're not familiar with the story, God created man, created man in his image. Man sinned like we learned, learned about last week. And that sin pattern continued. Genesis chapter 5 covers about fifteen to 1,600 years, the same chunk of time the scripture was taken to written. Genesis 5 covers all that, and basically the whole theme of Genesis 5 is a lot of people lived and a lot of people died. Yeah, that's about it. And we can go through and read it, but genealogies aren't always a lot of fun. But that's the, that's the whole theme of chapter 5. People lived and died continually. When God said, you eat of the, free, you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you eat of the tree of life, you will die. And that whole thing, death will enter. It entered. It happened. So people were getting continually evil. They were getting worse and worse. And God saw every intention of the thoughts of man were evil. So he told Noah, who was the only man who worshipped God, told Noah to build a big boat. He said, listen, I'm going to wage war on the earth. Get a bunker. <laughs> because it's coming. <laughs> That's pretty much what he did. So Noah builds this giant boat in 120 years he spends building this huge boat and inviting people, or inviting all the animals to come and hop on it. And people as well. And people were like, you're crazy. You're building a boat in the middle of a cornfield. That doesn't make any sense. You're not the brightest crayon in the box. But Noah built the boat and there was a huge flood. In this catastrophic, in this catastrophic flood... God destroyed everything, from the smallest thing to the biggest. All animals, all life on earth were destroyed. The only, of, the only thing that survived, the only people, were Noah and his seven family members, and then the animals that God brought on the boat. Immediately after that, something that's really cool is Noah gets off the boat and he worships God and God bring, gives him a promise. He says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. Here's the evidence of that promise, a rainbow in the sky. Every time it rains, you know the rain's going to stop. We got a bunch of snow and unfortunately it stopped. Uh, you can thank Noah for that one. <laughs> no, but um, God made this promise. And something that a lot of people don't talk about in that Noah's Arky, Arky, Arky song, they don't mention this, is the end of Noah's life. I don't know if you've gone and read through the whole thing, but in chapter 9, we learn that Noah is not 
just some great, perfect person. You find out that the first thing he did after he worshipped God and built an altar is he planted a vineyard and um, he became a farmer, which is fitting. But then he goes and plants the vineyard and gets really drunk and ends up naked, passed out in a tent at the end. You can't make this stuff up. That's actually what it says. That's the end of the story of Noah. There's a little bit more there, but that's what happened. Um, I mention that not just because it's awkward, but because there's actual point to it. And we're going to get to that here in just a little bit. (laughs) Anyway, the point of the message today is the flood's not a mulligan. That's what we're talking about. So if you're in Genesis 6, we're going to start talking about that. The word mulligan, what it means, it's a term in sports if you have a really bad shot and you need a second one. If you do something poorly, you need a second chance, so you get a mulligan. Um, I was playing frisbee golf with Pastor Dave and Ty right when I started at the church. And I was really excited. I was up in my office, and Dave phones me, and he's like, hey, you want to go play frisbee golf with us? And I'm like, I've only been on staff for like a month, so I'm thinking, yes, some good pastoral bonding time. And I played frisbee golf once. I know exactly what I'm doing. So... <laughs> So I'm like, sure, let's go. This is going to be great. So we hop in, I think, his car or something. We all run down there, and he gives me some of, lets me borrow some of his Frisbees because I didn't have any. And they both drive, and they've been playing this since the dawn of time. So, I mean, the Frisbee just goes forever. And, and I'm like, all right, got to get as far as them. So I take my first Frisbee, and I'm oh, man, this thing's going far. And I swing it, and it lands like three feet in front of me. Just nails the ground, and I'm like... I know what I'm I'm sorry. And Dave's like, yeah, it's a new disc. You've never played with it. That's fine. He's like, you can throw again. I'm like, all right, good. I got a second chance. This one's going far. So I take the Frisbee and I wind up and put everything I can into it. And it flies way up in the sky, which is an awful thing when you play Frisbee golf. But it goes way up there. And as it's going up, a truck is coming this way. Yeah, the Frisbee comes down and nails this truck right in the front bumper. If you're the driver of that truck, I apologize. Anyway, but this guy just stares at me, and and I'm just like, sorry, it's my fault. And Dave and Ty are like, we're not with this guy. (laughs) He has no clue what he's doing. I can't believe we hired him. (laughs) No, but that mulligan didn't really do me a whole lot of good. I probably should have kept with my first shot. Anyway, the point of this message isn't my ability at Frisbee golf. Rather, we're talking, we're going to see that God never needs to try again. God doesn't need a second chance. The flood was never God's attempt at getting people to work. Attempt two. Isn't God trying a second time because it didn't work out the first time like he planned? God's not that weak. We serve a God that's a lot more powerful than that. So... That's what we're talking about. And we could spend a whole lot of time on the flood talking about a million different things. And I went through a couple different sermons in preparing this, and some guys spend like four weeks or more on just like chapter seven of the flood. We're not going to do that. We're covering it in one week. And just the big picture, we could talk about all the different things that happened in it. We could talk talk about the godly heritage that Noah had. We could talk about... Um, how people lived so long. We could talk about what the Nephilim were. That'd be a lot of fun. I'd enjoy that. Anyway, we could talk about um, whether the flood was local or global because there's some debate on that one. We could also talk about evidence currently for a global flood and go over all the scientific stuff. But we're going to go a different direction. Today we're going to talk about why we need the flood. 
why the flood and the events of the flood matter to us today. We're not just going to try to explain some of our planet. We're not going to just study this so that we can have a reason for the rainbow. But rather, we are going to see how we need to understand the flood so that we can see God and his purposes and how he works now. That's why we're studying the flood. So today we're going to learn three truths that the flood shows us about God. Three truths that the flood shows us about God. And the first truth is it shows us the authority of God. The flood shows us the authority of God in four different aspects. So if you're in Genesis, um, turn over to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 8 here in just a minute. And we're going to skim over a whole bunch of chapters just so you know. So be ready to flip back and forth all through these. But the first aspect of God's authority that we see is God had the authority to choose Noah. God had the authority to choose Noah. That's the first thing. That's in Genesis 6, verse 8. Um, And if you start reading in verse 6, it says this. Genesis 6, verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe wipe from the face of the earth the human race whom I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God chose Noah. That word favor is literally the Hebrew word for grace. What grace is, is it unmerited favor, undeserved favor, getting something you don't deserve. That's what grace is. Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of God. He didn't deserve it, but God still chose him. And you kind of think it's surprising that Noah didn't deserve it, because later in this same chapter it says that he was the only righteous man. But you see at the end of the story that he made poor decisions and should have kept his clothes on. I mean, (laughs) he needed to think. He was not this great, holy person that we kind of think him to be. He was a normal person, just like any of us. He had sin. But God still chose to use him apart from his sin. So that's the first thing that God had authority to do, the first aspect of God's authority. The second aspect of God's authority that we're going to talk about is in chapter 7. And God had authority and has authority to bring the water. God brought this judgment. He brought this punishment. He brought the water. In chapter 7, verse 11, it says this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So this kind of gives us how God did it, how God brought the flood. He didn't just cause a bunch of rain to come down, but but water came up from the ground as well. Water came everywhere and completely covered the earth. God created everything. He had complete authority to do with his creation as he pleases. And it pleased him to go and bring judgment on the earth. He needed to bring it. He had complete authority to bring the water, to destroy everything. He had that authority. It's his. So the third aspect of God's authority is just a couple verses later in Genesis 7, in verse 16. And this is something that's really cool. God had authority to shut the door. All right, to shut the door. Check out verse 16 of chapter 7 of Genesis. The animals were going in, and male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord shut him in. The Lord sealed that door. 
God didn't just say, build a boat and tough luck. Hope you survive, sink or swim. But no, God shut the door saying, you know what? I'm going to make sure that you make it. I'm going to prove to you that I'm in this. This is the first time, other than some rain that came down, that Noah saw God do something totally miraculous in shutting the door. There's a difference between a miracle and providence. Providence is God using natural means to bring about his will, like bringing rain from the earth. That's God's providence. But something miracle, something miraculous is where God steps outside of nature and does something amazing. And that was God shutting the door. That's something that's so cool. He shut that. He made sure that they lived. This kind of leads us into the fourth aspect of God's authority. He has authority to preserve life. God had complete authority, not just to take life, but to preserve it. He made sure that they lived. In chapter 8, verse 1, after the flood had come and they're up on the water, in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were, that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. God remembered Noah. God wasn't distant during the flood. God, like we said earlier, he didn't just say, tough luck, you're on your own. But no, God was with him while he was on the ark. He was with him in the storm. God made sure that the door was closed, and he made sure that Noah stayed alive during that great flood. God preserved life, and he has the authority to do that. He's going to make sure that they live. So the first thing we learn about God in the story of Noah is we learn about his authority. That God has complete authority to take life and to preserve life. He has authority over everything. The next truth that we learn, and this one's really cool, is the desires of God. The desires of God. That's the next truth that we learn. And the first, the first of the desires of God that we're going to mention isn't directly in the text, but you'll be able to see it as we go along. The first desire of God is his own glory. The first desire of God is his own glory. If he were to desire anything more than his own glory, then that would mean that there's something above God to be desired, right? If God wants anything more than himself, then that means he's not everything. So he desires his glory. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, this doesn't directly correlate with the flood, but it's a really cool one. Chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For in him, and that him there is talking to Jesus, For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This text tells us a couple things. One thing, it tells us that Jesus was the active member in the Trinity when it came to creation. But it also tells us that he made everything for himself. He didn't make it for us. He made it for him. It's all about him and his glory. All things were created through him and for him. And then another kind of parallel passage is in Isaiah 48. And as I read through this, kind of pick up all the things from the flood that you see in it. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. 1,600 years from the time of creation to the time of the flood, that's delayed wrath. (laughs) Though they deserved it, he delayed his wrath for his own name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you as to not destroy you completely. He saved a remnant, and that was Noah. I have not destroyed you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. 
For my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. I will not yield my glory to another. In the time of Noah, what was going on, what brought the flood, was people were giving glory that was only due to God, or giving God's glory to another. They weren't glorifying God as they should have. And um, again, and Ty's going to talk a little bit about that in second look. So he's going to talk more about the reason for the flood in that. And we're not going to talk about it a whole lot. So this is a reminder. Take this out and Mark, remind me to watch the second look. And then you'll get reminded to watch it because it's really good. I highly encourage you because you're only getting part of the message this week, this Sunday, and you'll get the rest of it at the second look video. So check that box. Watch the video. Be reminded of that in the second look. But the reason for the flood so the first desire that God has is for his glory. The second desire that we see here is he desires his creation. He desires his creation. Noah, it says, was the only man in his time that walked with God, that had a relationship with God, that honored him as Lord and Master over all. See, God created Adam and Eve to have a relationship with him, to have communion with him. With sin, that fellowship was broken. Noah was someone else who had a relationship with God. In Genesis 8, the chapter we're in, if you jump over to verse 20, you read about the first thing that he did when he gets off the ark. It says in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and taken some of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The first thing that Noah does when he steps off the ark is he worships God. He praises him. He gives him glory. He keeps that relationship flowing. He keeps that relationship continual. He has fellowship with his creator. That's why God made us, to have a relationship with him, to know him. Um, kind of another aspect of his creation that we see in this chapter, and I don't have the verses listed, but it says five different times, twice in the first chunk of Genesis and then three times in the verses about the flood to be fruitful and multiply. Over and over and over it tells us that. That's the command that was given at the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. And this is not just talking about procreation. Though that's part of it, fill the earth, populate the planet. You got an empty planet, let's go put some people on it. That's not all that it's saying there, but it's also telling us currently that our task isn't just procreation, but also it is proclamation. It is proclamation to be fruitful and multiply. And for us as Christians today, that's a really important thing. There's a great book that I'd encourage you to read if you have a chance and maybe read through it with a friend. It's called Multiply by a guy named Francis Chan and also David Platt. If you have a chance to read it, read through it with a friend. Well worth the time. Multiplies the book. But it, it deals with just this topic that our task is to fill the earth and subdue it, to take the faith that we have and spread it on to others so that other people would know about Christ. That's a desire of God. Um, so oh, one thing about his creation that I, didn't, that I didn't state is we're created in his image. We're image bearers of God. That's really cool. Now, that doesn't mean that God has two arms and two legs and he's five foot five or five foot four and a half depending on what shoes I'm wearing. That doesn't mean, that doesn't, that's not what it's talking about. It says we're an image bearer of God. But rather what it's talking about is that we have character and we have emotions. We have relationships. These are things that God doesn't give to 
all the animals, but rather he gives to us. This is the deci- this is the major difference between us and all of God's other creation. We are made in his image. You're an image bearer of God. That's awesome. It's an amazing honor to be created in his image for him. So he desires his creation, desires his glory, desires his creation. The third desire is he desires our holiness. He desires our holiness. As we said, we're image bearers of God, and he wants his image to be pure. He desires that his image would be pure. So he desires our holiness. Sin disrupts our relationship with God. Again, that's why God brought the flood, was because of sin. And again, Second Look video talks a lot more about that. We're not going to dwell on that a whole lot. But he desires our holiness, and I'm going to say this one thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. If you've ever wondered what the will of God is, it tells you flat out, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be made holy. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God desires holiness. He desires purity from his people. As image bearers of him, this is what he wants from us. We reflect his glory. He wants us to be a pure reflection, not a tainted reflection. So, he desires, he desires holiness. He desires, the fourth thing, our salvation. He desires our salvation. In, a, in the story of Noah and the flood, well, the events of Noah and the flood, God chose to save Noah. God chose to save Noah. He didn't want to totally wipe out everything. He still desires his creation. He desires that his creation would be saved and be in complete fellowship with him continually. Something that's really cool about the story of Noah and the events here is you see really well portrayed God's justice on one hand, but then you also see his love and grace on the other. I've heard some people ask the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God punish people like that? But the real question is, isn't how a loving God could send people to hell, but how could a holy and just God allow anyone not to go? How could a holy and just God allow any sin with him whatsoever? There's this struggle within God because of these two truths, not just that he's just, but he's also loving, and he cares for us, and that's what we see in the flood. That God chose to save people. He chose to take people out who were headed to a destiny that was, a, that was away from him. In a first, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, but instead he's patient with you. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the desire of God, that people would be saved, that people would come to repentance, that they would change their mind from being against God to being in fellowship with God. That's what he desires. desires, And he's patient. He patiently endures us, even in our trials, even in our sin, even in our mistakes. God's patient with us which is awesome. He was patient in Noah's day and he's patient with us currently, but he desires our salvation. So this kind of brings us to the, the third point of the message, and this is kind of the really big thing, is the point of the flood is God's promise. And that's the third thing that the story of the flood shows us. It doesn't just show us he has complete authority over all, though he does. 
It doesn't just show us what the desires of God are, that he desires us. He desires that we would be in right fellowship with him. He desires our salvation. But it also shows us the promises of God. And this is a big deal theologically, is the flood. This is the first time that God is said to have made a covenant with his people. That God has made a promise. Um, the first time that it's even stated. And that's a really big thing. And the interesting thing about this promise that he made with Noah is that it was not dependent on Noah. And you can make promises with another person and it's kind of dependent mutually on both of you fulfilling those promises. But this promise is not dependent on anyone else. It's simply dependent on himself, which is something that's so amazing. So the first promise that we see is actually a restated promise from Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the scarlet thread that Pastor David mentioned was that line where it says, the serpent will strike at his heel, but he will crush his head, talking about the woman's offspring, and that's kind of an allusion to Christ. That though the serpent will strike at his heel, Christ will eventually completely conquer sin. That he will conquer that. He will conquer those judgments. Christ did that. But it's kind of restated in Genesis chapter 5, which is really cool. Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. And this is something that Lamech, um, Noah's dad, says. So Noah, or Genesis chapter 5, verse 28, says this. When Lamech had lived hundred and 82 years, he had a son, and he named him Noah. And God said, and, sorry, and said, I mean, Lamech said, and Lamech said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. In another translation, it says this, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What it's saying here is the curse that sin brought will be lifted, and it's going to be through Noah. The curse that sin brought is going to be lifted. There's going to be a day where we will be relieved from the pain and suffering that sin has brought into the world. That was through Jesus Christ. It came through Noah, just like it came through Adam, and that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which is awesome. So that's one of the threads of redemption we see so prominently here. Noah would provide a way out of the curse. He will bring us relief. The curse is going to be lifted, right? The curse is going to be lifted us in. That's the hope that we still have, that it's going to be lifted in us in eternity, but it's lifted from us in Jesus Christ in paying the penalty and dying the death that we deserved. The curse is going to be lifted. So, first promise is he would provide. The second promise is that he will never curse the ground again that he will never curse the ground again. And that's found in chapter 8. It's when God makes that promise to Noah. Chapter 8, verse 21. Noah had just finished. He's sacrificing to God. And then it says this in verse 21 of chapter 8. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God makes a promise saying, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to crush the earth with a flood ever again, not happening. 
But he says, even though the reason that he brought the flood was because of man's sinfulness, he said, I'm not going to bring the flood again, even though the sinfulness of man didn't disappear. Men are still just as sinful, we're just as wicked, we're just as fallen and depraved as they were. We're broken people in need of some fixing. But God says, even though this world is broken, I will not destroy it like I did. That's an awesome promise. So he promises he'll never curse the ground again. And the third promise is related to that one, and it's found in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 13. And I'm going to read the whole chunk, and then we're going to talk about it. Genesis 9, verses 8 through 13 says this, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between you and between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Uh, on the first to memorize this week, I put that one there. Memorize Genesis 9 verses 11 through, or Genesis 9, 11 through 13. Just because of the significance of this promise. God promises he's never going to crush anything. He's never going to crush the world with a flood. And then he gives us a sign of that, the evidence of that. And we can see the practical evidence of that regularly here on earth. And that's the rainbow that he placed in the clouds, that he placed in the sky. Whenever it rains and there's some sun, you can see the rainbow. You can see that mark, that evidence that he's not going to crush the earth again. But something that's interesting is that word rainbow in the Hebrew in the text is actually the same word for an archer's bow. It's a, it's a weapon. God's saying, I'm going to place my weapon in the clouds. This weapon of a flood that covers everything is no more. See, you can see it on the shelf every time it rains. You can see my promise that that weapon is not being used. That's so awesome. That's amazing. His weapon of a universal flood is finished. He'll never punish the earth like he did once before, but that doesn't mean he won't punish again. Check out uh, Luke chapter 17. It's going to be on the screen here in just a second. But a little context to this. Jesus is sitting and talking with his disciples, and his disciples ask, Hey, so uh, what's going to be the sign that you're going to come and finally rule as king on earth? Right? We want to see you as king Let's do that. That'll be cool. We want you as king right now. Do it. And when's it going to happen? And this is how Jesus responds. He says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days in, of the Son of Man, where people were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given up in marriage to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to come back, but it's not going to be pretty, just like it wasn't pretty when the flood came. He destroyed all life then, and Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to do what a good judge does. He's going to punish. 
He's going to come as a judge. It's not going to be with water like he did, but rather it's going to be with fire, and it's going to be what the Bible describes. Something really, really hard. And he's coming back. There's going to be another judgment. So we talked about the authority of God. We talked about the desires of God. We talked about the promises. Good reminder that the flood was not a mulligan. The flood wasn't a mulligan. It, was, it wasn't God messing up and trying again. It wasn't that. What the flood was is God showing attributes of himself so that we can understand and worship him all the more now. So we can understand him more. We can worship him more. So what? So what? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that there was a huge flood that wiped out the earth? What does that matter for us today? Well, we learned about God's authority. We learned about his desire and demand that his creation would worship him, that his creation would bring him glory. We talked about the promise of provision for those that are his, that he shows us, that he's never going to wipe us out like he once did, and that also he's going to lift the curse of sin. Here's three so what's. The first one is that God uses the least likely people. That God uses the least likely people. Noah found grace, undeserved favor from God, but he's also the guy that gets drunk and naked at the end of the story. I mean, God uses people that mess up, people that make mistakes, that do things that are wrong. This is an encouragement for us because... We all mess up. Maybe not the same way Noah did, or at least I hope not. But God still uses us. He chooses to use us, sinful people. God uses people with issues. God uses people who have issues. We have issues, yet God can still use us. He's more powerful than we could imagine. He uses people with issues. The second one is God was above the storm. When the flood came, he brought it. He was punishing, he was judging, but he was actively involved in the storm. He was above it, and he preserved the life of Noah and those on the ark. He was above the storm. It says that he remembered Noah and his family. They were never forgotten, right? He was with them, he was there. So what this means for you, what implication it has, is I don't know what storm you're facing, what flood you're kind of living in right now what trial you're in, but I want to let you know that God's working, and he has the absolute best. Also, if Noah on the fl- in the boat, this didn't happen, but if Noah or anyone on the boat would have jumped ship, they would have died. It would have been awful for them, but God preserved them. I want to encourage you right now, in the trial you may be facing, stay on the boat. God has the absolute best in mind. He's got complete control. He has complete authority. Stay on the boat. Let Jesus preserve you. Let him preserve you. And that kind of goes into, goes into the, third, the third application, the third so what. And it's this, and this is the scarlet thread that's so obvious in the text. Jesus is our ark. Jesus is our ark. He's our way of escape from his judgment. He's our way of salvation. Are you on the boat? Are you on the boat? Have you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Trusted that he's going to be the one that gets you through the storms? Trusted that he's going to be the one that's going to hold you, that's going to keep you there? Have you trusted in him alone for your salvation, or are you trusting something else? 
trusting your own swimming ability. I guarantee any of the people who tried to swim out the storm didn't make it. They needed to be on the boat. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In Acts, it says that, that um, it says there's salvation in no one else and no other name other than Christ. He's the only way of salvation. Are you believing that? Are you trusting that? Or are you not? Are you on the boat? So we're going to close in prayer. The ushers are going to come up and the worship team's also going to come and close in one more song. So um, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, for being our ark, for being our way of salvation. Lord, I pray that as we worship you this after this morning and also um, this afternoon and the week to come, Lord, that our lives would be a pleasing aroma to you. Lord, that you'd receive glory in our actions and our attitudes and that we would see this story of Noah and the ark as more than that, but rather we'd see how, how great you are. Lord, see more of your character through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the ushers come forward here and they pass the offering plate, if you're our guest here, please don't feel any obligation to put anything uh, in, in, the, in the plate. This is an opportunity for those who call North Hills home to support our ministry here and around the world. But if you would, please drop those connect cards in the offering plate as it goes by. Would you stand your feet as we sing this final song? All to Jesus I surrender All to Him I I will ever love and trust Him in His presence.